We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the Mind on My Money podcast presented by Pinnacle Trust. Hosted by RebelGrove.com publisher Neil McCrady and Pinnacle Trust financial guru Martin Palomo, the Mind on My Money podcast tackles the financial questions we're all thinking about. From paying for college to saving for retirement, from life insurance needs to 401ks and everything in between. The goal is to help you take the stress out of financial concerns and give you some tips to enjoy life while your mind is on your money. Now here are your hosts, Neil McCrady. And Martin Paloma. Welcome to another edition of Mind on the Money presented by Pinnacle. I'm Neil McCready. Martin Paloma with me here today as well. It's going to be kind of an abbreviated show. We're, we're both in tight windows. Martin's got a lot of stuff going on. I've got a lot of stuff going on. So we'll hit some uh, big topics and then um, say goodbye for the weekend. I'll tell you real quickly, I'm in the Clark Ford Studio, 662-257-1900. And uh, Martin, before we get rolling, tell the people about uh, Pinnacle. Um, yeah, man, uh, man, the story, the story is continuing. We are, we are transitioning, um, you know, to our, to our new, uh, custodian Schwab, a lot of really exciting things going, going on here. Um, I'm happy to say we are almost complete with the transition and I will, I've never been happier to have something behind me, but, um, one of the things we've been able to do is, is upgrade our technology, um, you know, our planning tools, our reporting tools and, and really trying to serve you know, trying to serve our client at the, at a maximum level and, and being able to chop things up the way they want to see it. So, uh, you know, a lot of people do this on their own. They don't really know where they are. They don't benchmark themselves. They don't know if they're on track. It's kind of like just, uh, throwing darts at the dartboard and hoping that, that something sticks. And so, I mean, if I would say to people, if that's been you and, um, and you don't know whether you're on track or not to reach your goals, that's, that's where we can add the most value. Um, and you can reach us at 601-957-0323 or uh, info at mypinnwealth.com. Okay, there's a lot I want to get to. There's no way we can get to all of it. And I know it's the, it's the end of the quarter, <laughs> which means that you're you're super busy with different things. And I know that, that that's something that a lot of people are keeping an eye on as they get to the end of the third quarter and end of the fourth quarter of the calendar year. Um, I'll start here. Because I know a lot of people, in fact, there's on my rebelgrove.com message board where uh, prices never rise, by the way. There's no inflation ever at rebelgrove.com. Um, anyway. It's cheaper every day. One of the people on my message board, and frankly, one of the kind of more rational people just said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm out of the stock market. Someone talked me out of it. And there was a big long thread about it. And so I'm reading from the Wall Street Journal, as I'm apt to do, because I just find it to be 
pretty solid publication. This is by Akane Otani. Not spelled like Shohei, but with no H. If you haven't seen Shohei Otani play baseball, by the way, you should. Anyway, this is Akane Otani. It says, markets are closing out the quarter on a tumultuous note. Stocks have pulled back from all-time highs. Shares of large, fast-growing companies are heading towards their worst month since the pandemic-fueled sell-off of March 2020. And Treasury yields have shot up to their highest level since June. It is hardly the sanguine end to the quarter that investors had hoped for. Many money managers say they are heading into the final few months of the year feeling on edge. Central bankers who had thought this year's rise in inflation would wind up being a short-term phenomenon aren't sure how long transitory pressures will persist. Persist, I should say. Strategists who had predicted another strong quarter of economic growth are cutting estimates because of supply chain bottlenecks and the highly contagious Delta variant of COVID-19. Economic data have also been falling short of expectations. Citigroup's Economic Surprise Index, which tracks how much U.S. reports have been exceeding or undershooting estimates, fell this month to its lowest level since June 2020. Last paragraph here that I'll read before I just hand you the the floor. All told, the S&P 500 is still up 16% for the year and on course to notch a sixth straight quarter of gains The index is just a few percentage points away from its record close hit in early September. But the stock market is also poised to close out its worst month in a year. All but one of the S&P 500's 11 sectors are down for the month of September. I know that's a lot to throw at you and go, okay, comment, Martin, but. (laughs) Yep, I'll comment. Yeah. Um, So let's, let's start with where you started. Let's talk about bonds and their impacts with stocks and what does it mean when you when you read or hear you know treasury yields are skyrocketing so i I, i've said this several times before on the podcast but just for you know the listeners who may not remember or maybe you're new you're a new listener and we appreciate you for being a new listener um you remember when you were like a little kid and you would be on the seesaw or the teeter-totter depending on what part of the country you're from you know one kid goes up and the other kid goes down and and you know, and it's lots of fun for about five seconds. Um, bond yields and bond prices have that same effect. So when bond yields are going up, that means the prices of bonds are going down. Well, generally the prices of bonds go down when people sell them. So you have people leaving bonds and you go, well, why would they be leaving bonds? Well, if you think that inflation is kind of here to stay, right? And right now the 10-year treasury bonds at one and a half. So if you think we are going to have inflation, then a year from now, you would expect that you could get a higher interest rate because interest rates are going to go up to combat inflation. So you would say, hey, I'm going to I'm going to sell out of my bonds right now that are instead of having my money locked in at one and a half, maybe I can buy back in when the 10 year treasury, maybe it'll be at, you know, 2.25 or two and a half. So there's been money rotating out of bonds, but guess where it's been going to? It's been going into stocks. Okay. Now I know that you say, well, that doesn't make any sense because you know, the stock market is down. Well, the biggest, biggest sector that's been impacted the most during this is the technology sectors. Um, and reason being, and I'm just going to, we're going to walk slowly through this 
The reason being is the cost of doing business in the tech sectors um, from a human capital standpoint is significantly more. So when you have inflation happening, that means wage inflations are going to go up. That means you're going to have to pay people, you know, more for their job. So if a hundred percent of your tech company is brain capital because you need, you know, those brains to create, it's going to cost you more, you know, to do business. The investment's going to cost more than let's say, a, you know, a manufacturing firm where half of their stuff is automated by a machine. You know, the cost of the machine is the same because it's already there. It's already built. You know, it's not, you're not having to go buy new machines and then you have some piece of human capital. So, you know, some of the firms that have, you know, that have, that have done better during this and, and, and energy has generally done well, you know, some of the materials, um, you know, have done well, but it's, it's not, uh, uncommon to see, you know, in a period of inflation that, that there's going to be some sectors of the stock market that are hurt. Uh, and also, you know, a lot of the tech companies are generally levered, meaning that, you know, they go out and they borrow money to be able to reinvest, you know, to do things inside of their company. And uh, they don't have a whole lot of cash on the balance sheet. They're, you know, they're borrowing or either they're, you know, issuing new stock to bring in new cash. And if the cost of borrowing goes up, then that means their net income, you know, the money they have left over after they've paid all their expenses, all their taxes and all their interest payments is going to go down if everything else is kind of held the same because the, you know, it's just like your mortgage. You know, if interest rates go up and you have to buy a new house, you're going to pay more for the same square footage because your interest rate is more. And it's, you know, translates back to our, you know, kind of home economics, you know, very cleanly. But in companies that are more mature, that are not the quote unquote growth companies, your more matures, your energy companies, maybe some of your manufacturing firms, you know, a lot of them aren't, aren't levered and they have a bunch of cash coming in from, you know, the sale of their stuff or their net income is rising and they don't have, they're not having to refinance to, you know, to build new property or plants or, or equipment. They have things that they've already invested into. Um, and, and they're, and they're cash flow positive. They're, they have really good dividends. And even right now, the S and P 500, if someone, if someone goes and invests in the S and P 500, the dividend yield on it is, you know, right around the 2% ish range. So you put your money in and let's just forget about whether the price goes up or down. Cause if you're investing for income, you don't care what the price does. Cause you, all you care about is the, the check that you're getting every month. So if you invest into the S and P 500 index, you get a dividend yield of about 2% plus you get the opportunity for growth, which over long periods of time always happens. Uh, or you can invest in a 10 year government bond, lock your money up for 10 years at, you know, at now one, you know, close to one and a half percent. It was, you know, 1.3, two weeks ago. So if I said, Hey, Neil, um, give me your money and you need income. I'm either going to give you one and a half percent or I'm going to give you two. Which one do you want? Yeah. The uh, obvious answer is, well, I, you I, want 2%. Yeah, of course. So historically when interest rates, when the 10 year treasury uh, yield has been below the S and P 500 yield. Historically, markets have always performed very well, just because it forces investors who need income out of bonds 
out of safety and into things where they can get income. And you think about companies like AT&T. AT&T pays somewhere around a 6% dividend. Pretty solid company, you know, arguably not going anywhere. If you need income in retirement and you don't care about what the price does because you're not, you're, you're, you know, that's your kid's problem, but you need current income, you know, at and is a great spot to go. You get that 6%. You know, Verizon is a great spot to go. So there are these big companies, big blue chip companies that pay, you know, strong dividends that really since 2009, investors have been forced out of fixed income markets or bond markets, you know, and into stocks or equities to, to even get current income and current yield. So I know there's a lot of stuff going on and I just verbally vomited all over you, but I wanted to walk through, you know, when people hear the 10 year treasury yield is rising, what does that mean and how could it impact your, you know, investments? If you're doing it on your own in the 10 years going up and you have the NASDAQ or, you know, all of these high flying tech companies, you know, just kind of have the expectation that your, your stock portfolio is going to decline. But if you've got a really well diversified portfolio and you've got, you know, some growth, some value, some tech, you know, some dividend payers, that, that's the best way to be. Uh, and that's, and that's how we invest is, you know, having a diversified portfolio. Now we do make some directional bets um, on whether we think a certain, you know, uh, capitalization class is going to outperform another, or if we think U.S. is going to beat, you know, Europe and, and the emerging markets. And then even in bonds, I'm very active in the bond portfolio. But man, I will tell you, we've had our hedges in um, this whole, I mean, the whole time we've had our hedges in, but I increased our hedges the beginning of the year um, because I kind of thought there was going to be uh, a lot of volatility, especially with this administration. I kind of figured there'd be a good bit of volatility, but the signs had not pointed to, which we have some very uh, defined investment disciplines that our investment committee, our investment management unit follows, and we do not break the rules there. So as long as, you know, the Fed keeps doing some things, um, you know, we're going to keep, we're still bullish. Now I'll call I'll call us cautiously optimistic, but I'm still bullish. I still think, you know, stocks are a better place to be than bonds. Although bonds are really expensive right now, stocks are kind of getting expensive, but bonds are really, really expensive right now. All right. This is similar. It's the same, it's a different article on the same topic, but it has a little different take. Tell me whether this is kind of generally what you're saying. It's the Sam Goldfarb. He writes, investors often claim the U.S. government bond market is the best place to look for insights into the shifting outlook for the economy and interest rates. Right now, some think it isn't. In the waning days of the third quarter, yields on U.S. government bonds shot higher. That might be taken as an encouraging sign about the prospects for the economy because yields, which rise when bond prices fall, generally tend to climb with forecasts for growth and inflation. Many analysts, though, don't believe that yields are rising now because much has changed about the economic trajectory. Rather, they see the bond sell-off as an overdue correction to an overdone rally, the product of profit-taking more than a major shift in thinking. The reason that yields, yields rise matters because it can influence how investors respond in other markets. All else being equal, higher yields can hurt stock prices by lifting corporate borrowing costs and reducing the value of future earnings. But investors can also welcome them if they feel rising yields reflect an improving 
growth outlook. In this case, yep. investors have registered a mixed reaction. Most are optimistic about the economy, but their views haven't changed much since last week when yields were lower. Stocks have been volatile, first climbing when yields started rising, then falling sharply to start this week. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that solidifies exactly, you know, what I was saying too. Is, um, and and he is. There's one thing that he said that I didn't say in my in my little rant, um, which is true. You know, I think the reason that Jay Powell said, "Hey, we're and he's our Fed chairman," which then and and the Democrats, uh, especially Elizabeth Warren, came out and said probably one of the most stupid things I've and I've heard politicians say a lot of stupid things and um Elizabeth Warren essentially called Jay Powell the devil and said that you know she would not support him being you know renominated as the fed chair and I just kind of you know that I, that's a head scratcher because this dude has almost flawlessly pivoted through you know, if we were sailing in an ocean, he pivoted through a category four hurricane and didn't lose, you know, any of his crew or any of his cargo. Like, uh, I mean, that's, he, he pulled off a pretty amazing feat and I don't know that there are very many fed chairs that could have done it, especially when you had, you know, kind of a bully like Trump in office trying to bully Powell into doing things that Powell knew we didn't need to do, which actually turned out that Powell was correct and Trump was wrong on, you know, what he was trying to get accomplished, which he, Trump wanted Powell to drop our interest rates down to zero, you know, pre COVID to quote unquote compete with China. Well, if we would have done that, we would have gotten annihilated during, you know, the, the market downturn and the economic downturn during Rona. So, I mean, kudos to, to Powell for staying the course when you had, you know, a gorilla beating you with his fists and not doing it. So Elizabeth Warren is, is, and is an idiot. I cannot believe that, that she would say that. And I, I may get arrested for, for saying that, but uh, anyway, no, well, not by me. Uh, I'm not going to come get you. you know, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, so, you uh, know, but back to Powell too, you know, yeah. I think one of the things he said at the, you know, in his last uh, notes was, hey, we're going to start tapering at the end of the year. Uh, the economy is strong enough to be able to handle it. And probably the end of next year, we'll start raising rates a little bit. That's a good sign. I mean, you know, maybe it's the, the e how easy it has been to make money is over. You know, you, years of the S&P being up, you know, 30% one year, 20% the next year, and 16% the following year. That's not normal. Like, that is not normal at all. I mean, I'm grateful for it. We've made money. Our clients have made money, but that's not normal. So, you know, a return to quote unquote reality is normal. And I think that we've just been so high on all of this easy money that's been pumped into our economy that we've, you know, we're so roasted that we've forgotten that what sobriety feels like. And that's where I think we're heading is, is back to sobriety. We're coming off the, you know, the trip or the high or or the, you know, or the drunkenness and, and being back to reality. Speaking of drunk. <laughs> I can't wait to see where this goes now. Okay. I'm, this is from CBSnews.com for the people that are like, oh, you always go with kind of a, a right-leaning publication. I don't think anyone's going to accuse CBS News of that. 
Dateline Washington, let's see, I always like to give the person who wrote this credit. This is Melissa Quinn and Catherine Watson. So I'm sure that both of them are thrilled to have their names mentioned on the Mind on My Money podcast. They are Elizabeth, Catherine, hope you have a great weekend. Uh, House Democrats have taken President Biden's first-term domestic policy priorities and dropped them into one big 2,465-page bill that aims to expand the nation's social safety net and combat climate change. Because the $3.5 trillion bill, my emphasis, not Elizabeth's and Catherine's, is opposed by Republicans. Democrats are trying to enact it. Uh, Ad popped up. Hold on. Democrats are trying to enact it through a budgetary process called reconciliation, solely with Democratic support. But this would require a yes vote from every Senate Democrat, and two of them, Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin, say they won't support it unless the price comes down. Manchin issued a statement on Wednesday night, we're taping this on Thursday, reiterating his desire for a strategic pause on the legislation, insisting the country shouldn't be spending trillions of dollars now. The 10-year Build Back Better Act would fund everything from free community college to expanded Medicare. It also has a number of... um, of other items, including child care, universal pre-K, Medicare expansion, extended child tax credit, uh, cut in prescription uh, drug prices, paid family and medical leave, climate change. Um, one of the things that Manchin is upset about is a $150 billion clean electricity performance program. Uh, It would have other lesser-known provisions as well. Democrats have included a tax plan (laughs) to pay for the provisions in the bill. It would raise the corporate tax rate from 21 to 26%, and the top income tax rate for Americans making over $400,000 would increase from 37 to 39.6%. The top capital gains rate would go from 20 to 25%. Democrats are also looking to beef up tax enforcement, by the IRS as a vehicle for paying for the ta- package. If this doesn't make the hair on your arms rise up, you might not be paying attention. And, but but listen, Martin, you know this stuff better than me. This feels like a dramatic overreach. Tell me, explain to me as if I'm six, what it means when you add $3.5 trillion to a, a, a deficit that is already... I think it's nineteen trillion. What does that What does that mean for me? And I, as I always tell people, I'm fifty one. I'm more than half dead. What does it mean for my kids? What does it mean for my grandkids? What does it What does it mean for them? Or does it mean anything? Because there's a lot of people out there, and at some point, I kind of go, "Well, you know, I, I see why they think that." There's a lot of people out there that go, "I don't care what the deficit is. It doesn't matter to me." I'm just trying to pay my bills and pay my mortgage and get to the next month. I'm month to month. I'm paycheck to paycheck. I don't have the ability to worry about well, the, the, the national debt, the national deficit. I want free community college. I want expanded health care. I want cheaper um, uh, prescription drug prices. I want paid family and medical leave. I want these things. I don't really care who ultimately pays for it, or if anyone ultimately pays for it. 
Yeah, um, man, I kind of have our, so my politi- my politics aside from from this. I have I have I have some um, mixed mixed feelings, uh, mixed emotions about it, which I try to keep my politics out of rational thinking because sometimes my politics will tell me, you know, you you should do this because it doesn't make sense, you know, long term. But uh, so, I mean, I'm, I'm very fiscally conservative uh, and on some on most social issues, I probably am more towards the middle. Um, but infrastructure. So let's just let's just talk about infrastructure and then I'll pull out the all of the quote unquote pork that goes in it. Um, I am definitely for investing in our in our infrastructure because we do have a very aging uh, infrastructure in the U.S. You know, we have we are light years behind, you know, Europe and Japan and rail uh, access. I realize the, you know, the topography and the size of of those places are are two totally different, you know, arguments. So I'm not trying to say no, but you're exactly have- not to interrupt you, but you're exactly right. So I've been joking on my Oxford Exxon podcast. Carson is taking a uh, world history course this semester and i have turned into his world history tutor to the point where i basically study it with him yeah man it is it's kind of interesting you know i mean it is we we've and and it's kind of made us a little closer we've bonded i think he realizes i can teach it and i'll tell him hey bud this feels like an essay question hey bud this feels like a multiple choice question but regardless not to get off that we don't have time to go down that that road it might be funny another day but one of the things that you know as as europe developed and now we're talking kind of about how America began to develop with rivers and rails and, you know, the transcontinental railroad and that kind of thing. Right. If, if you don't have infrastructure, you can't grow. And, and if you do have infrastructure, you can grow economically at a rapid rate. I, I know people are out there going, well, n- no, no joke, Neil. But, but it, sometimes it needs to be reminded, and you're exactly right, the infrastructure in our country has absolutely fallen off. Yeah, it's and, aged. And, it's really aged. And there's a a one uh, trillion dollar infrastructure bill that's uh, headed for a vote today. As a matter of fact, right. as we tape this on Thursday, and and uh, you know it's 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 pretty bipartisan. I, I, I suspect it will it will pass, but but regardless, it needs to be done at some point. My problem with the way we're doing government today is that, and this applies to both parties, they simply can't. Do the job the right that thing. they're elected to do. <laughs> right. They instead of saying, "Hey, yeah, you know what? We, we got some differences on some of these other things. We we do. We have some we have some issues, and and we're gonna, we need to put some. Of, I, I'm kind of with Mansion here. Let's hit the pause button on that, and then let's go to something that we need to do, and let's do it because infrastructure also creates jobs. It's like in yes, it in, in, in ancient Europe, you know, in ancient 1800s when they started, you know, um, iron ore. They started producing massive amounts of iron ore for what? So that they could put the railroads down. They had to have uniformity of the railroads. Well, someone had to build those railroads. That created jobs, uh, you know. And then you needed uh, the steam locomotion, steam locomotive, and all that stuff to to, to transport things. You had to build yep. canals. You had to do all of those things to in 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 the eighteen hundreds, and that created jobs, which led to prosperity, which led to more prosperity, which led to more prosperity. And and it needs to be done for a number of reasons, but we're so busy fighting about this other stuff that we yep. keep falling further and further behind. Yeah, the pork. 
the pork, man. Yes, I mean, and that's they, they, and that's exactly where I was going is if we could just strip out infrastructure, I'm 100% in favor. And then right now, so if you think about where interest rates are, we are the lowest that it's ever been. So if the government were to issue a 30-year bond to be able to finance, you know, this infrastructure deal, they could get that 30-year bond, you know, locked in where they're only paying out 2% for 30 years, which is... You know, it's kind of like when you refinancing your house, you know, when interest rates go down, you want to refinance your house, not when they go up. So, and we know at some point in the next, you know, 12 to 18 months, interest rates are going up. So you, it's, I think it's better to go ahead and lock that in right now. And, and I would lock it in for the longer term, the 30 year, and I know they'll have to do it. They can't do it all in 30s. So they'll do it some in 10, some in 2, some in 5, some in 15, some in 20s. And that's okay. But I'd rather lock I'd rather lock it in longer term, lower, and go ahead and, and pass a really big infrastructure bill right now. Maybe even larger than they think it should be and have a little bit of, um, you know, reserves in there for, you know, if there's something that's going to be down the road and, you know, in a couple of years or something like that to be able to lock in the financing at a lower rate. And if they don't ever need it, they could just advance, you know, they could pay off some of the, 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 you know, more maturing, the debt that's maturing, you know, sooner rather than later. Um, but it is, I don't, I don't like all of the, the stuff that gets put in there, you know, and essentially what ends up happening though, the, the national deficit, like our debt, it doesn't terrify me, um, because GDP continues to grow. So, Let's just break this back to to household finances, and I know I'll, I won't get super long in the in the tooth because I know that we got a we've got a hard stop. Um, but so if you if your pay goes up by you know five percent every year, right, and and you don't make many changes, you know, in your lifestyle for you know for five years, and all of a sudden you look out five years later, and I'm just going to use round numbers just so, cause I'm, I don't have a calculator in front of me and I'm just going to do public math, which I'm, I'll embarrass myself in. So if you were making a hundred thousand dollars and simple math, you know, your income goes up by 5%, um, you know, over, uh, over a five year period of time, 5% each year. So five years later, now you're making 125,000. Well, you're able to service a little bit higher load of debt than you were, five years ago because you have more income. But if when you were, if five years ago, interest rates were 6% and then, you know, five years later, which we'll call today, the interest rates are 2%. You actually can service an even larger amount of load, not only because your income has gone up, but because interest rates have gone down, you know, to keep a payment that would be, you know, level uh, or have grown by 5%, you can actually have a lot more debt and service it without, without worrying about defaulting or anything like that, which is what the whole debt ceiling is about, by the way. Um, but not worry about defaulting on that debt because your income has grown, i.e. GDP from our country has gone up and interest rates have gone down. So you're able to do a lot more. So it doesn't, it doesn't make me nervous about our national deficit at, at this point. Now, if interest rates were, if the 10 year treasury was 6% and we're talking about, you know, unnecessary spending that does, I mean, I'm, that's where I'm like, no, 
we only need to be doing what's necessary. And if tenure, if the tenure treasury was at 10% and we're talking about spending, I'd be like, you better make damn sure that it is critical spending that you're doing because that is really expensive money to borrow. But when money's really, really cheap to borrow, uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't give me the gag reflex. And then, you know, and our kids and our grandkids will be paying the notes, you know, on this, you know, 20 years, 25 years down the road. But if they're paying it at a lower rate, I can swallow that a whole lot easier. But if the treasure, if the 10 year treasury was at 10% and we're talking about, you know, a multi-trillion dollar, um, you know, bill we're trying to pass, it better be critical stuff that's in there. And it better not be, you know, trying to just give things away because we want to pander to a, you know, to our constituents to get reelected. That's where I'm ready. This is a bipartisan comment that I'm about to make. I'm ready for Nancy Pelosi to go away. I'm ready for Mitch McConnell to go away. I am ready for younger um, people to get into that spot, those spots. Uh, I'm ready for uh, people who, and I don't know if this is possible, who are less compromised, less leveraged than those people. And I don't, and again, I know that's a flaw in our system and, Carson and I are actually starting to study that part that, that came up in, cool, in history. Yeah, and I was like, you know what? How about that? You know, I'm very impressed with this history teacher. I've never, I've only met her one time, but the way that she's teaching is is, is solid. It's really good. It makes sense where it's it forces them to think a little bit, which is good as opposed to just memorize because they're yeah they're conditioned absolutely. to just totally memorize agree. facts, you know. And I keep telling him, we'll sit there and and sometimes I'm like, okay, so tell me about this, and he can't, and I'm like, okay, it's okay. The test is not till a week. We got time. Let's talk about it. Let's think about it. Think. I want you to think. And then the more that you start doing that, the more that you begin to think, and the more that you learn how to think, the more that you learn how to put things together and your scores go up and et cetera. So, yeah. And, uh, I, and I, I, I love history, man. I mean, I, I think too. that it's, it's fascinating because there's, there is nothing new under the sun. Um, history repeats itself. I don't know if you've heard that before, but it's true. <laughs> um, yep. It does. When you, and when you start studying history, like with a, like, Carson turns 15 on Monday. Um, when you start studying history with a young person and you start talking through it, you're like, see how this is happening again now? And, and you're like, it's totally different because we live in a technological age and stuff like that. But it, but it's the same. this is absolutely happening again, see? Yeah. And, and um, anyway, it's kind of, kind of interesting. Um, all right, we got like five minutes left. Anything you want to just get off your chest or anything you want to talk about? No, man. I mean, I think... Uh, a, a lot of people and, and third third quarter generally or historically is you know ranks in the bottom for you know stock market performances um so i wouldn't i wouldn't t- i would not tell folks to you know uh be making adjustments in your portfolio based off of what you're hearing you know in the news today cuz cuz generally speaking the fourth quarter uh tends to be really good uh, times in the market and, and time in the market is much better plan than timing the market. Because when you time, you have to be right twice. You have to be right when you sell and you have to be right when you buy back in. And, and that is almost impossible to do. And we don't even try to time, you know, here we, when, well, I mean, when we get fastballs down the middle with, you know, no strikes and bases loaded, yeah, I take a swing just like February last year. Uh, when the market was down 20%, I was like, dude, this is a buying opportunity. So when it went down 25, we bought stock. When it was down 30, we bought stock. When it was down 35, we bought stock. And then the rebound happened and all of our clients, 
you know, are so much better for it. You know, sometimes you get those very obvious buying opportunities, but as choppy as the markets have been, I know people are trying to, you know, buy the dips and stuff like that. If you have cash, okay, cool. You can quote unquote buy the dips. But if you're trying to trade your portfolio, man, it is, it's just so, uh, it's so hard to do it. And fourth quarter, generally speaking, sentiment around the world is good. We have lots of holiday seasons in the fourth quarter. People are generally happy. People are, you know, less worried about risk. They're more focused on family and they're more focused on the holidays. So fourth quarter, generally, I mean, the, the Santa Claus rally is real and fourth quarter people generally, the markets generally tend to do, do well. Now, I hope I don't eat my words this year, um, but I don't think there's just nothing out there that scares me about the fourth quarter. So I just tell people, stay the course. Don't make any crazy decisions. Don't make emotional decisions. They generally end up bad. And, you know, and if you are doing it by yourself or you don't have anyone to help you, that's that's what professionals are there for. You know, I don't go do heart surgery on myself because, you know, I think I know better than the heart surgeon. If I, if I need heart surgery, I'm going to let the doctors do their job. And I'm probably not going to be like, eh, doc, I think you're wrong. Uh, my buddy, my neighbor said, you know, that he saved a bunch of money by doing it with a, you know, uh, a kitchen knife instead of going to get it professionally done. Well, I mean, and, and if you have those neighbors and buddies that were like, man, I got this hot idea, just run. Don't do it. Do you and, get up? And they may be right, but they'll be wrong 10 times and right once. Let me ask you this. Do you get up on October the 1st? And hold four fingers in the air, like fourth quarter. Do you, do <laughs> you know that? what? I'm going to do that tomorrow. It'll be the first time ever. You know what? I, but I'm, I'll I'm admit this now. Tomorrow. I'll admit this now. This is uh, I'm going to walk in the office. I'm just going to I'm going to wave my four fingers at mm-hmm. at everybody. <laughs> I can tell you this that to myself, uh, when I used to have to do marathon training and the 20 mile yeah. runs, yep. on on the 20 mile runs, when I got to the 16th mile. In my mind, I would hold four fingers up. Like, there you go. Here we go. I'm fourth quarter, I mean, dude. Yeah, and running a marathon, you know, those mile nineteen through twenty four are brutal. You know what? It never they was for brutal. me. Those were not the ones for me that were brutal. Um, the, really, yeah, they one, were for me. Man. Once I got to twenty, I felt like it was over. Um, the, the the ones that were really hard for me were like fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. He just felt like, oh my god, what are we? Why am I doing this? Once I got to about nineteen, I'm like, okay, twenty's right around the corner. And once I got to twenty, I was, I was, I was good. Man, you were, and that's so mental, man. And that's it's absolutely you're, you're, mental. You're a stronger mental man than me. Because when I got to mile nineteen, I was like, oh my god, can this please just end? <laughs> it's crazy. I did not, I did not embrace the suck. I would love to run one more just because I've run four and running five sounds so much better than running four, but I've, I've now reached, I've come to the conclusion that my body could not handle that. It just, it, and if it did, it wouldn't be worth the, the pain I would go through. And I, and like in football season right now, like I don't have time to do a 20 mile run. So for sure, man. Well, hey, sure. Martin, this was fun. Uh, before, yeah. we, before we go, remind the people how they can get in touch with you guys at Pinnacle. Yep. Again, uh, office number is still the same, 601-957-0323. Uh, or you can, you can email us, info at mypinnwealth.com. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll stop there. Thanks to everybody for making us a part of your week, like we always say. 
We mean it. We really appreciate you listening. The numbers are great. We appreciate you uh, making us a part of your Thursday. Have a great weekend. Be safe out there, and we hope to talk to you again next Thursday for another edition of Mind of My Money presented by Pinnacle. Until then, for Martin, I'm Neil. Take care. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.